You know him, you love him. It's finally time to talk about the greatest of the Greek heroes, Heracles. Um, I imagine you've been waiting for this one. So have I. Heracles is a lot of fun to talk about. Um, but first, a couple of little fiddly details. Um, as I have been in suggesting in other lectures up to this point, this is the last lecture before the midterm. Do not forget about the midterm. It is coming. Especially if you're online, since you won't be in class to like, actually physically take it, be sure to take the midterm by the end of next week, um, assuming that you're listening to this at the appropriate time. Um, there is a review sheet available that you are more than welcome to reference. If you have questions about the midterm, feel free to shoot them my way. I will be happy to answer anything that there is that you want to talk about. Um, as far as the format is concerned, um, I imagine I will talk about this in class at some point, but just to give you a rough outline of what you're dealing with in case you don't have a class to attend, um, the midterm is roughly, it's meant to be more objective than subjective, but there is a fair amount of subjectivity on there as well. Um, so it's kind of divided in half right down the middle um, between the portion that I would usually conduct in class and which my on-campus students will conduct in class and the part that you will have to take home in any event. Um, so the objective portion, the portion that you would take in class, will start with a list of the gods um, and I will expect you to be able to reproduce their Greek names, their Roman names, and their domains. Um, there again, it's all on the review sheet, so don't worry about it. Like I will strategically remove certain like words from the list that you see on the review sheet. Um, and that will literally be the first page of the exam. Um, you'll just have to like fill in the blanks as far as, you know, what are the names? What are the domains? Um, each domain, you only have to put one domain. Like you do not have to put for Zeus sky and also lightning or sky and king of the gods. Any one of them will do. Um, especially when you're dealing with something as complicated as Apollo, like anything goes there. You can put civilization, you can put medicine, you can put light, you can put prophecy. I will accept all of them. Um, and don't worry about spelling either. Like if you do not spell Hephaestos correctly, I am not going to take points off. I just need to be able to recognize the difference between Hephaestos and Hermes and any other, you know, gods with similarly spelled names. Um, so don't panic about that. Second page is on heroes. Uh, there's just going to be a list of heroes and a list of heroic deeds, and I will expect you to match the heroes to the heroic deeds. Um, there will be more heroic deeds than heroes, which means that I will expect you to match some heroes to multiple heroic deeds, especially since we're talking about Heracles today, who has a whole list of 12. Um, so when in doubt, you might as well write Heracles. It's probably a pretty safe bet because um, he accomplished all of the things. Uh, but he will not, in fact, be the only hero on the list. Like, Jason will be on there and uh, Theseus and Perseus those kind of guys as well as a couple of surprises who may or may not actually be considered heroes in the traditional sense um, but who did important deeds all the same um, there will follow a bunch of multiple choice questions these multiple choice questions are mostly not from the quizzes but some of them are they're primarily geared not towards details but towards important events stuff that you really should know stuff that we spent a lot of time in class talking about or stuff that was really important from the stuff that you read um, so keep an eye out for those um, and then there are some fill in or some short answers just a handful like three or four um, and they're primarily pointed towards the stuff that we 
discussed in class and in the lectures but didn't necessarily read um things like the history of greece and rome um and stuff like that more like slightly bigger picture than the the multiple choice can fully capture but not quite as big picture and thematic as you will find in the in the essays um and then if i'm not mistaken there is no short essay on this exam i could be wrong i'll I'll check that. Um, if you have questions about that, feel free to ask. When I do a short essay, it's usually something broad and open and something that anyone can answer, and I'm mostly looking to see how well you can answer it, like how well you can articulate your opinion about it. Um, like, what constitutes a Greek hero? Something like that. Um, but then there's the long essay, and the long essay is literally half of your grade. Like, it's a completely different assignment as far as Canvas is concerned. Um, both the objective portion and the long essay portion are worth the same amount. Um, so basically i'm just going to give you those questions like they should be online at this point visible at this point um it's like one of five just pick one and study up for it the theory here at least as far as you know i'm thinking is that the objective portion of the exam is supposed to test all of the knowledge that you've accumulated the the objective stuff um it's supposed to to test how much you have retained from this class um but it's also supposed to be more broad like, you don't need to know the fiddly little details about every one of Heracles' labors in order to pass the midterm. You do not need to remember, like, all of the children of Nyx to pass the midterm. Um, that's stuff that is not especially important um, for, you know, that broad understanding of what is going on in these Greek myths. However, in the long essay, I expect you to probe a little deeper. Um, I expect you to seek out and find those picky little details and to also explain their relevance in the greater context of these myths um so like for example um there is one in there about the greek attitude towards women um, if you choose to write that essay i expect you to do some research beforehand to reread a lot of the material to pick a couple of really good examples for the point that you want to make to basically say something more than greeks hate women um, I want you to sort of get into the nuances. Exactly why and how do they hate women? How is it demonstrated? Are there exceptional cases? That sort of thing. Um, so with that in mind, like that's where I hope that you will find those fiddly little details and employ them to your purposes. Um, because some of those details are really important to interpretation. Recognizing that like Gaia, as it is portrayed by the Greeks, and say... Um, like uh eve as she's portrayed in the bible and have very different attitudes and very different sort of perspectives that's a good way of demonstrating exactly how the greeks and israelites see um the way that women work um the fact that gaia is a betrayer in the greeks but eve is sort of just hapless and gullible in the bible suggests different things about the way that the greeks and the israelites see women in general um so we can talk about that more feel free to ask me questions about it shoot me emails you know talk to me in class um however it is best and most convenient for you um but enough bureaucracy we need to get to heracles um so Obviously, Heracles is a huge deal. He is, like, the most important hero in the entire Greek tradition. And importantly, for our purposes, keep in mind that, like, the Greeks don't really differentiate too much between the heroes and um, the gods as far as where they fit into their religious purposes. Um, 
by which I mean like Greeks will make sacrifices and perform rituals and frankly worship heroes um, the same way that they worship gods. Again, especially in certain localized places. Like you better believe that they worship Theseus in Athens um, and that they worship um, probably not so much Oedipus, but they probably worship Perseus uh, and Bellerophon and, you know, Jason as in Colchis just as well. Um, importantly for us, Heracles is unique insofar as he does in fact become a god. Um, he also achieves apotheosis, um, and he is the only one among the Greeks who do this. Like we talked last week about Aeneas successfully achieving godhood according to the Romans. The Romans are way more open-minded about like heroes becoming gods. Again, like as we stress, the emperors are all gods and will all be worshipped after they die sometimes before they die, depending on how insistent they are about it. Um, so there's a very sort of like open attitude as far as godliness is concerned among the Romans, but not so among the Greeks. Heracles is the only one who achieves this particular feat. He is unique in that sense. Um, he is the only one heroic enough to overcome his own mortality. Um, and keep this in mind because Heracles isn't perfect. In fact, like, the text tends to emphasize how imperfect Heracles is. Like, yeah, he's absolutely super strong. Um, that is his defining characteristic. Like, he beats the crap out of people. That's what he does. Um, but on the one hand, first, like, he also flies into a rage at the slightest, like, impulse. Um, one of the first episodes we have in Heracles' life is like some idiot is trying to teach him how to play music on a lyre. And apparently, like, Heracles is so frustrated by this that when his music teacher comes by and, like, smacks him on the head for doing it wrong, Heracles, like, wails him and, like, beats the crap out of him with the lyre. Like, just hits him over the head with it and abruptly kills him. Um, and, you know... He also doesn't get punished for this. Um, like, there's there's definitely a certain amount of wish fulfillment there. A little bit of, like, fantastic, um, like, you know, everybody wants to beat the shit out of their teacher at some point. Especially when they're being especially annoying. Heracles does, and he gets away with it. Um, because, like, he argues fairly cleverly that, you know, he the, the music teacher struck him first and therefore Heracles was just defending himself, which, you know, is absolute nonsense, but, you know, they go for it anyway. Um, and that's one of the things to expect about Heracles. He gets away with shit. <laughs> like, he not necessarily stuff that he deserves or stuff that is warranted, but he frequently gets an out because, like, he's Heracles and everybody knows this. Um, there will be multiple times that Heracles will be like, all right, I'm going to take this now. And they'll be like, you can't take that. And he's like, dude, I'm Heracles. What are you going to do about it? And they're like, oh, fine. And this special treatment includes Heracles's birth and patronage. So this starts all the way back at his parentage. Um, the, his supposed father, Amphitryon, um, is married to Alcmene, and Amphitryon is apparently out of town on business, which the business itself is absolutely hilarious. Like, one of my favorite myths ever, period. Um, like, apparently they're out on this great hunt because there's this fox that has been prophesied never to be caught. 
Um, and it's been terrorizing the countryside and like carrying off chickens. And of course it's elusive. It can never be caught. So Amphitryon and a bunch of other Greeks are like wandering around trying to catch the uncatchable fox. Um, and somebody gets the bright idea that they should get the hound, the magic faded hound that will always catch what it tries to, what it chases. So now you've got the hound that is fated to always catch what it chases chasing the fox that is fated never to be caught and apparently this whole thing is just a, such a giant logical prophetic nightmare that zeus just turns them both to stone and calls it a day um so yeah it's a it's absolutely just this dumb story but i love it because i'm a philosopher and i love contradictions enacted through myth anyway amphitryon is out on this mad fox hunt of par paradoxy um and meanwhile, Zeus is stopping Alcmene while he's out. Um, apparently, like, Zeus lengthens the night so he can, you know, have a really good buffing. Um, and Amphitryon comes home, and Alcmene's like, Hey, um, I saw you just last night. And Amphitryon is like, Dude, I just got back home. What have you been doing? And Alcmene's like, Wait, that wasn't you? And awkwardness ensues. Uh, the important thing to take away from this is that Heracles is one of the few, actually, heroic figures who is, in fact, a son of Zeus. Um, like, as much as Zeus absolutely is the father of, like, a whole giant pile of, like, demigods and gods in their own right, most of them don't get nearly as much press as Heracles, for sure. Like, Theseus has Poseidon in the works, Perseus... I'm not even sure he does have anyone fancy in the works. Aeneas obviously has Aphrodite. Um, Achilles has Thetis. Like, there's a whole bunch of god-mortal relations that produce heroes. But it doesn't seem like Zeus's offspring get all that much press. Um, this is the big one, then. So, apparently Amphitryon is really suspicious about this. Like, he knows that Zeus was stopping his wife. Um, so, as a result, like, he tests... Um, the two babies that are produced, because apparently, like, Alcmene gives birth to twins, one of which is mortal and one of which is a demigod, because I don't have any idea how this works, and I'm pretty sure the Greeks don't too. Like, it's kind of crazy to think that, like, you know, if Zeus as Amphitryon sleeps with her one night, and then Amphitryon as Amphitryon sleeps with her the next night, that she will conceive twins, and one of them will be mortal and one of them will be a god. No idea why this is the case, but this is definitely the case. So Amphitryon is trying to figure out which kid is in fact his. So he apparently drops snakes in the cradle, or Hera drops snakes in the cradle because she hates Heracles because, again, Zeus was sleeping with somebody other than her, so now she's mad. Um, either way, Heracles immediately like strangles the snakes in his crib while the other baby cowers in the corner. And Amphitryon is like, aw, that's my baby cowering in the corner. I don't know who this other guy is, though. But this is the birth of Heracles. Like, even his birth is attended by miracles and incredible defeats of power. Um, but of course, all of this power comes with a downside. Like, Hera is so mad at Heracles all of the time um, and dogs him. Like, there is no greater god-tormenting mortal relationship than Hera tormenting Heracles. The trouble is that Heracles is actually strong enough to take it. Um, like, that's sort of the character here. And even his name, Heracles, basically just means, like, tormented by Hera. Um, so, you know, that's very much intrinsic to who he is and what his character is. Um, at any rate, like... He's got a couple of early adventures that we should, you know, be somewhat aware of. 
Um, he's got his slaying the Kithanoian lion or Kitharanonian lion. Um, and it's it's said here in the Library of Apollodorus that apparently like he wears this lion skin always. Um, and that's usually not the way that it goes. Like most traditions have it that Heracles is wearing the skin of the Nemean lion, um, which we'll get to in a moment and for reasons that are fairly obvious. Um, but, you know, Apollodorus isn't necessarily wrong on this one. Again, multiple traditions all coming from different perspectives. Um, now, the next one is another heroic sleeping with people adventure. Um, which you'll remember, like Jason and the Argonauts, they started with sleeping with the smelly women of Lemnos, and it seems like most of the heroes get a sleeping with women adventure. But of course, Heracles, being Heracles, his sleeping with women adventure is supercharged. And as a result, it's this one king who has 50 daughters, and he entertains Heracles for 50 days, and every night Heracles sleeps with another one of his daughters. So, like, he's systematically trying to get as many Heracles babies as possible, um, for his lineage and legacy which thanks dad that's helpful um the important thing for our purposes the like the real thing that kicks off heracles's adventure um is the 12 labors um and you'll note especially like why he's required to do the 12 labors in the first place um like hera throws him into a like horrible rage and in this rage he kills his own wife um and his like nephews and nieces and children um which is horrifying um but is also not damning like notice that he is not responsible for his actions at this point as far as the greeks are concerned he is driven to rage by hera um, and we will talk about the Greek conception of rage more when we get to Homer, because literally the theme of the Iliad is rage. Um, and we'll see Achilles articulate the idea of rage way better than we see Apollodorus talking about it here um, with Heracles. But keep in mind that Heracles is fairly prone to these fits of rage. Like, there are multiple occasions where Heracles seems to lose his cool, fly off the handle, and do something that he regrets. Whether it's killing his music tutor or killing his family. Um, some sources have it that after he completes the Twelve Labors, um, he, like gets married and has more kids and then Hera sends him into another rage and he kills his family again um and then he's responsible for, to do something else to make up for it but you know at, at this point like everybody's sick and tired of Heracles getting more famous and more honor from his you know penance so they like make him do sewing for like 10 years um which sucks uh, too bad for Heracles. Not really his thing, but honestly, more appropriate since he's likely to learn patience. At any rate, because he kills Megara and his kids in this way, he is now assigned the ten labors initially um, of Eurystheus. Um, and these are, this is the big show. Like, this is why you read Heracles. These are the things that Heracles is especially remembered for. Like, as much as his adventures with the Argonauts and his other adventures after this are important, like, these are the ones that everybody remembers. Um, and th they rank in importance. Like, it's not all super important. Uh, but you should definitely know, like, the A-list uh, the A-list labors, because they tend to be the ones that you will see repeated over and over and over again, like, referenced all of the time, all over the place. Um, and you'll also notice that, like, Disney got this very wrong. Um, 
first off, because Heracles doesn't go on a murderous, like, rage sprees, um, because, you know, G ratings and all, you'll notice that, like, you can actually read this, the Disney version of Heracles as kind of like a prologue <laughs> to the Twelve Labors, like, if you have a sick mind like I do, apparently. Um, at any rate, the Ten Labors. The first labor that he is given by Eurystheus is to tr bring him the skin of the Nemean lion. Um, and the Nemean lion, of course, is awesome because its skin is impenetrable. Um, like, Heracles shoots arrows at it, and the arrows just, like, bounce off his skin. Um, so instead, Heracles, in a fit of his ingenuity, which, P.S., Heracles does show ingenuity. He's not just, like, an idiot strong guy, as many sort of, like, heroic strong men through history tend to be, looking at you, Samson. Um, he l tracks the Nemean lion back to its cave, like corners it in the back of the cave and like grabs it and wrestles it and then like puts a stranglehold on it and then just strangles it to death, you know, killing it in a way that does not require him to actually pierce its skin. Um, this is the skin he typically wears on his adventures. Um, and if you see Heracles anywhere... Um, in like Greek pottery or Greek art, he's usually depicted wearing the lion's skin, carrying a club. Those are the two things that you should always look for to, to see Heracles in action. Um, and of course, the reason why he wears the skin is obvious. It's impenetrable. Like, he's now invulnerable to arrows and blades and weapons and all sorts of things. Um, how he gets it off the lion, I have no idea, and I definitely don't want to investigate too deeply into how that works. Um, but at any rate, he usually is wearing the skin. Usually he has, like, the head of the lion around his face, like a, like a helmet or a cowl. Um, this is how you will most often see Heracles. Um, so he brings back the Nemean lion skin to Eurystheus, and that's labor one completed. Um, labor two is the Lernian Hydra. Um, and the Hydra is especially famous because of its various magical properties. Um, it's apparently immortal, like it has this immortal head sitting right in the middle of its body. But the other thing about the Lernian Hydra is it starts with like three heads, but every time that you cut off one of the heads or crush the head and in our particular story since again Heracles carries a club not a sword um, the Hydra will spring up two more heads from the empty socket of where the head used to be um, this is sort of what is most memorable about the Hydra um, the idea that like you have a horrible evil thing um, that gets more scary the more you do damage to it um, and Disney totally got this one right like they got the scene with the Hydra very, very well executed. Um, but more than that, like, this is just a symbol in a lot of ways. Like, um, you can fre frequently talk about, like, evil organizations or, like, political entities or, you know, stuff like that where you cut off one head and two grow back in its place. Like, it's not just Captain America who has to fight Hydras. Um, like, everybody fights Hydras. It's a part of daily life. Um, anytime that you think you've overcome your obstacle only to find that it's gotten more complicated, usually this is understood as like the heads of the Hydra being multiplied. Um, and you'll notice that Heracles gets smart on this one as well. Um, so he's like wrestling with this Hydra and beating the crap out of the Hydra. Um, and he's like pummeling these heads. Only two more heads are growing back every time that he does. Um, so he gets like his pal... Um, his torchbearer, Iolaus, 
um, to like bring forth the torch and every time that Heracles crushes one of the heads like knocks off one of these heads Iolaus sears the place where the head was cauterizing it so no new heads will grow um, and in this way Heracles like manages to get the heads under control at which point he takes off the last head the immortal head and then he apparently just like buries it in a ditch somewhere you know that's a good way to solve your immortal problems just like stick them underground and now you don't have to worry about them anymore um, the other thing to know about the hydra is that it has a horrible venom like it's terribly poisonous um, and as a result heracles dips his arrows in the hydra's blood um, thus now he has poisoned arrows like even more awesome swag from heracles um keep this in mind the poisoned hydra arrows are going to become very important in future um like episodes of heracles's adventures um so hooray he has successfully defeated the hydra he goes back to eurystheus two labors down eight more to go except not because this one doesn't count um, Eurystheus is a bit finicky when it comes to these labors, and as a result, if Heracles does anything untoward, um, Eurystheus refuses to count the labor. And in this case, since Heracles got help to defeat the Hydra, namely Iolaus, um, Eurystheus rules that it doesn't count, and therefore he adds another labor onto the list. This is why there are ultimately 12 labors, even though the original plan was only for 10. Um, whatever the fairness of this situation, we're on to labor three. Um, Eurystheus asks Heracles to bring him the Carinician Hind. Um, and this time he's got to bring it in alive. No more of this easy-peasy killing stuff. Um, now you are going to capture these monsters and bring them back, which kind of sucks. Um, because famously Eurystheus is like a coward. So as a result, anytime that Heracles brings back any of these monsters, like Eurystheus jumps into his giant bronze pot that he has built just for this purpose, and he like hides there until Heracles and the monster go away. Um, which kind of suggests, on the one hand, that Eurystheus, A, is a coward, yes, uh, but B, that he also doesn't expect Heracles to succeed. Um, like Peleus with Jason, like getting rid of Perseus, many of these heroic feats are meant to kill the hero involved, but of course, heroes being heroes, they're better than you expect, and they overcome the obstacles, and too bad for you. Um, the important thing about the Carinthian Hind, though, is that it is sacred to Artemis. Um, like, it's got golden horns, so it's a little bit dangerous, but, you know, mostly it's just fast and nimble. A hind is, you know, the fancy term for a female deer. Um, so this is going to be a finesse thing. Um, and that's particularly challenging for Heracles, who is not at all about finesse. Heracles is a beat-the-thing-until-it-dies kind of hero, um, or a strangle-the-invulnerable-lion-until-it-dies. Um, so he's chasing this friggin' hind all over the place, to the point that he actually gets like really annoyed um, and he's about to run out of time. So he sh tries to shoot it with his with his bow um, and manages to like catch it anyway somehow. Like he doesn't actually hit it, which is good because if he did, remember poisoned arrows, that would go badly. Um, but apparently like he spooks it and as a result, it, you know, takes a bad step and falls 
um, injuring itself and letting Heracles capture it. Um, but Artemis gets ticked about this. Remember, the hind is sacred to Artemis. But this is one of those cases where Heracles gets off scot-free. Like you'll notice in Apollodorus, it says on page 274, um, Artemis with Apollo met him and would have wrested the hind from him and rebuked him for attempting to kill her sacred animal. However, by pleading necessity and laying the blame on Eurystheus, he appeased the anger of the goddess and carried the beast alive to Mycenae. Um, this is the first of several cases where Heracles kind of crosses paths with one of the gods, and the reaction is almost always the same. The god is like, oh my gosh, I hate Heracles so much, why is he messing with my shit? And then they're like, right, because he's Heracles and he's Zeus's favorite, and there's nothing that I can do about this. And I kind of love the idea of Heracles being like the scourge of the gods, that he's just this obnoxious pest who keeps like breaking all the gods' cool stuff, and they just kind of have to look the other way and let it happen because he's daddy's golden boy um like heracles will frequently have this happen like somebody will stop him in his tracks be like you can't do that heracles will respond i'm heracles and it's like all right go ahead fine whatever um so he brings back the hind and eurystheus is naturally terrified because eurystheus um this is one of the pot ones and then Heracles releases the hind, no harm, no foul, three labors down. Um, fourth labor, he is supposed to bring the Arimanthian boar back to Eurystheus. Um, and then Arimanthian boar is one of many sort of awesome boars that like get captured or cause havoc over the Greek countryside. Um, there's a big hunt for one of the boars at one point, which also engages a whole bunch of heroes. Um, not one we're going to read about though, because that's basically the whole story. There was this boar, it was scary, a bunch of heroes went after it, they killed it, hooray. Um, in this particular case, the trick is he's got to bring it back alive. It's another bring the thing alive, no cheating and killing it deal. Um, but actually, what's more interesting about this particular labor is the side trip. Um, apparently, in the process, he has a drunken revelry with some centaurs um, and drinks some wine, especially sacred to the centaurs, because Heracles, again, doesn't give a shit. Um, and the centaurs get mad, and a fight ensues, and Heracles starts beating the crap out of some centaurs because he's Heracles. What are they going to do about it? But in the process, he accidentally shoots Chiron. Um, and Chiron's a big deal. Like, I don't think we've run into him yet, um, but Chiron is the only centaur that anyone respects in the Greek world. Centaurs, as a rule, tend to be like this paradigm of monstrous bestial lust. Like, you will frequently see centaurs, like, busting up weddings to carry off the bride, um, or, like, getting crazy drunk and then, like, rioting over the countryside. Um, centaurs, if you don't know, are half man, half horse. Um, and most of them, like I stress, are just violent and boorish and annoying. Um, so, like, nobody sheds any tears when Heracles beats the crap out of centaurs, even though centaurs are, like, being nice to him. Um, but the one really good centaur is Chiron. Chiron famously trains heroes um, in various arts and crafts. He is a famous healer. Um, he is generally a peaceful, good-natured centaur, and everybody loves him. Um, so when you know, Heracles shoots him with his poisoned Lernian Hydra arrows. Um, Chiron becomes, like, overwhelmed with this horrible pain. Uh, but Chiron is also, for some reason, immortal. And as a result, he's just in pain all the time and will not die, which sucks. Um, 
So this is definitely one of those indication, one of those times when uh, Heracles and his like carelessness actually cause major problems. And while you know nothing comes of it for Heracles, like no no skin off his nose, um, it's pretty obvious that like not being aware of the consequences of his actions means that Heracles is in fact doing some pretty serious damage. Um, if he's not careful about his power and his abilities. Um, as it will happen, Chiron will apparently exchange mortality with someone, because um, that's apparently a thing you can do. Uh, like, it'll happen later, but Prometheus, when Heracles has freed him, will exchange his mortality for Chiron's immortality, even though I thought Prometheus was immortal, but don't read too deeply into it who knows nobody understands what's going on um at any rate chiron apparently gives up his immortality exchanges it for mortality at some point and as a consequence is finally allowed to die thanks heracles for killing our good friend chiron anyway he catches the boar he then brings back to eurystheus once again eurystheus hides in the pot and we're on to labor five Labor 5 is one of our big ones, like Learning in Hydra, definitely remember the Learning in Hydra, definitely remember the, the Nemean Lion, um, definitely remember the Aegean Stables, as weird as this one is. Um, so the Aegean Stables are huge, like there's space for like 100 cows or 100 horses or both. Um, and Aegeus is this big deal king, and he's apparently awesome, maybe the son of the sun, maybe not, who knows. At any rate, he's got really messy stables. Um, so Eurystheus, figuring out that Heracles is not about to get challenged by, like, monsters, decides that he's gonna give Heracles some busy work instead. His job is now to clean all of the shit out of the Aegean stables. Um, and Heracles goes off to clean out the shed, and the theory is it's going to take him, like, a long time to do it. Um, Eurystheus gives him the stipulation that he's supposed to do it in a single day, um, which, you know, is, again, impossible, and therefore no way can Heracles accomplish this. Um, but anyway, Heracles shows up to King Aegeus and is like, hey, I'm going to clean out your stables, um, if you pay me for it. And Aegeus is willing to talk over terms, so they, you know, hash out a price. And then apparently Heracles, like, picks up a river, or two rivers, and just diverts them into the stable, so the water just, like, flushes through and flushes all the shit out. Um, which, you know, is one way to handle the situation. Um, at any rate, then he goes back to Aegeus and he's like, congratulations, your stables are clean now, where's my pay? And apparently Aegeus in this process has found out that Eurystheus sent him to clean out the stables as a labor, so now Aegeus refuses to pay Heracles, um, and then a whole, like, judicial thing gets involved, and now, like, the rest of the, the story of the fifth labor of Heracles boils down to, like, and this is the civil suit that Heracles made against King Aegeus for not paying him. Um, as it happens, Eurystheus also gets wind that Heracles was trying to get like paid for this particular task. No double dipping for Heracles, though. And I believe the way that this, mo this pans out in most versions is that um, Aegeus doesn't pay him, and Eurystheus doesn't give him credit for the labor. So in trying to double dip, Heracles actually gets no credit for this particular labor. Sucks to suck. Um, so this one also won't count, and this is why we end up with 12, not just 10 or 11 labors. Um, but remember this one, because this is one of the really impressive feats, as weird as it is. 
Um, labor number six is the Stymphalian Birds. This one is less exciting. Definitely a B-list labor. Um, basically, like, there's Stymphalos and there are birds. Um, they're, like, horrible birds that apparently, like, attack people. Um, so, weirdly, like, this has got to be the weirdest of the bunch. Um, Heracles doesn't know how to get rid of the birds, so Athena gives him bronze castanets. Apparently that musical training really is going to come in handy for Heracles. So Heracles, like, castanets the birds away, and then when they, like, fly away, Heracles shoots them and kills them. So hooray! Heracles has defeated the Stymphalian birds with the help of his magical bronze castanets. Labor 7 is the Cretan bull. And the bull has a bit of a backstory to it. Like, this is not a terribly important labor of Heracles, but it's probably good to know about the bull in the first place. Um, apparently, like, remember, the island of Crete is that big island just south of mainland Greece where King Minos used to hang out, and it's, like, where the Minoans used to generally hang out. Um, it is an important feature of the Greek landscape. Um, and, and, like, these characters keep coming up. Like, Minos is the same guy who, you know, was forcing people uh, to get eaten by the Minotaur until Theseus, you know, killed the Minotaur. But, importantly, the Cretan bull is likely related to our Minotaur. In fact, you'll notice that, like, originally... Uh, Minos was on Crete, he was going to sacrifice to Poseidon because, you know, Crete is a giant island. Of course, Poseidon is super important to Crete and to King Minos. Um, so he says to Poseidon, hey, send me a sacrifice and I will sacrifice it. And apparently Poseidon sends him the most gorgeous bull that King Minos has ever seen. Um, and as a result, like, King Minos is like, I'm not sacrificing that gorgeous bull. That bull is hot. So I'm going to sacrifice this regular run-of-the-mill old bull instead. At which point Poseidon, depending on the tradition, makes the bull, like, really crazy and feral, and it starts, like, attacking people. Um, or, alternatively, or for that matter, and or, this is also the bull that Pasiphae falls madly in love with, and then she's sleeping with this bull, and that's how we get a minotaur. Um... Again, it's one hot bull, guys. I don't question it, nor should you. Um, at any rate, the extremely hot, extremely violent bull is, like, terrorizing the countryside in Crete. So, naturally, Heracles shows up and decatches it, and he brings it home, and that's all there is to it. It's really kind of boring as far as Heracles is concerned, even though the bull itself is way more exciting in other myths and in its other appearances. Anyway, Labor 8, he is supposed to bring the mares of Diomedes back to Mycenae. Um, apparently these are flesh-eating mares. Like, Diomedes is apparently just a dick. Like, we don't really get any explanation of exactly why this particular Diomedes is the worst. Um, but he's been training his horses to eat human flesh. So, you know, man-eating horses, that's not great. Um, at any rate, like, Heracles teams up with a few people on this one because, you know, nobody likes man-eating horses, and they just go ahead and kill Diomedes, take the horses, and then drive them off to Mycenae. So, hooray! No more human-eating horses and their randomly dickish owner. Um, also, the mares apparently, like, die when Eurystheus gets them. Like, Eurystheus just lets them go, and then they're just destroyed. Oops, sucks to be a horse when you eat human flesh. Um, so, another labor down. Eight down, four to go. Um, 
Labor 9 is one of the big ones. You should probably remember this one. Heracles is dispatched to bring Eurystheus the belt of Hippolyta, queen of the Amazons. Um, now, we've run across the Amazons once before. I believe Jason and the Argonauts ran into them and, you know, crushed them because, again, men are always better than women. That's basically the motto of Jason and the Argonauts. Um, women suck and Jason is the best because... Anyway, Heracles comes to the Amazons, and this is totally just going to be the most open and shut labor yet. Like, he shows up, Hippolyta's like, okay, you're awesome, here, have this belt. Like, some traditions have it that Heracles is sleeping with Hippolyta, like, she's just really attracted to him. Um, so, you know, this is all good. Like, Heracles shows up, is like, you're awesome, here's my belt. Feel free to bring it back when you're done with it. Heracles is like, fine, and he's getting in the boat ready to leave. But apparently Hera, who has been scheming this whole time, is like gossiping with the other Amazons um, and stress that like Hippolyta has been snowed by Heracles and Heracles is there to kill the Amazons. And as a result, they attack him um, and, you know, he kills them because that's what Heracles does. Um, he kills Hippolyta, takes her belt, and then carries off the belt. Hooray, labor number nine, randomly killing unnecessarily the Amazons due to Hera being a monster. Um, so, yeah, another great misogynistic tick in the Greek misogyny box. Um, labor number ten, he's supposed to go get the cattle of Geryon, and, like, this one is mostly boring, um, like the boar, uh, it's more exciting what Heracles gets into along the way than actually fighting Geryon. Geryon himself is kind of cool, like he's apparently a three-headed, six-legged dude, like he's three people attached at the waist, um, and he's got all these cows, which are awesome, apparently. But it's the journey that's, that makes it really worthwhile for Heracles. Um, especially important is, like, he has to cross the desert to get to Geryon, um, and in the process of crossing the desert, he gets really hot and he apparently threatens the sun by pointing his bow and arrows at it. But rather than the sun, like burning him to a crisp, the sun is like, wow, that's really impressive. I bet you totally could shoot me out of the sky. So I'm going to back off and you can, you know, cross this desert with relatively little heat. And also here's this magic goblet that apparently you can sail across the ocean in question mark. Anyway, this works out nicely. He finds Geryon, he wrestles Geryon, he beats the crap out of Geryon, he takes all the cows and then, like, carries the cows in the goblet across the sea? Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. Somehow he gets the cows to Gary to Eurystheus, labor 10 complete. Um, but again, the thing to remember on this one is him threatening the sun with his bows and arrows. Because, like, that's just how Heracles rolls. Um, like, I, this desert makes me hot, therefore I'm going to beat the crap out of the sun. Um, labor 11. So now we've got our two makeup labors, and both of these are A-listers. You should definitely remember both the adventures with the Golden Apples of the Hesperides and the conquest of Kerberos or Cerberus. Um, so the golden apples of the Hesperides, we've run into these before. Um, usually these are, if not the same, then at least conflated with the apples of discord. Um, the golden apples that are protected and that everybody wants, um, and therefore like discord carries them around, Eris. 
Um, and this is, these are one of the golden apples that, um, that like, uh, Athena, Hera, and Aphrodite fight over, which leads to the Trojan War. Um, you will also see them again in the story of Atalanta later on when we read Ovid's Metamorphoses. Um, at any rate, they're really valuable and everybody wants them. Um, like, that's the thing about the golden apples of the Hesperides. Everybody wants them and everybody is willing to fight over them. So, naturally, Heracles is dispatched to get some for Eurystheus, which, you know, this is like the smartest labor on Eurystheus's part. Finally, he gets something he can use, um, rather than, like, telling Heracles to go, you know, fight boars and stuff. Like, if we're going to give Heracles impossible tasks, let's at least give him an impossible task that makes you rich in the process, right? Anyhow, this one is a bit involved. Um, the Hesperides are protecting these apples in some weird, like, secondary location among the Hyperboreans. Like, humans are not supposed to set foot there. Um, they're guarded by this immortal dragon. Like, they used to be guarded by, um, the Hundred-Eyed Argos, um, who, according to the myth, like, had a hundred eyes all over his body and only ever closed half of them in sleep at a time. Um, there's a great story where Hermes decides to steal some of the golden apples of the Hesperides, um, and he has to get past Argos, the, the watchman, and, like, Hermes has a magic wand that helps him put our, all of Argos's eyes to sleep. Um, so he's, like, singing him a song, and Argos drifts off to sleep, and then he closes his eyes forever in a sleep of death, and then carries off the apples. Apparently, now that Argos is not a thing, we have a giant, hundred-headed, immortal dragon... Because, you know, they're, they're just all over the place at this point in time. You know, they're guarding golden fleeces, they're guarding golden apples. Who knows? Whatever. At any rate, this is a problem because Heracles can't get there. Like, he's literally not allowed to go into the Garden of the, the, the Hesperides. Um, but it is suggested to him, perhaps you could get someone who is allowed to go there to do it for him. Um, specifically, like, he's apparently wandering around causing trouble trying to figure out exactly how he's going to you know get to this um and in the process he stumbles across prometheus and he frees prometheus um this is the occasion when prometheus who at this point like when we left saw him last he was getting his liver repeatedly devoured by vultures as punishment for betraying zeus and bringing fire um to humanity as well as like tricking zeus question mark out of the good parts of the sacrifices. Um, Prometheus has since been chained to a rock while this liver, this v vulture repeatedly comes down, devours his liver every day, and then his liver grows back every night to be devoured again. Um, Heracles shoots the vulture. Heracles breaks the chains. Prometheus is now freed. Um, hooray, Prometheus. Prometheus is also, remember, really smart. Um, he was the guy who, like, had the foresight to give humans gifts in the first place. Um, unlike Epimetheus Afterthought, who just rushed through and gave all the benefits to animals. Um, so Prometheus gives, some Her gives Heracles some advice about this golden apple situation. Specifically, he says, go find Atlas, get Atlas to do it for you. Um, which works out nicely. Like, Atlas is the guy who is supposed to be holding up the sky. 
Um, we left him in, you know, the very early weeks of this class in Hesiod's Theogony, um, like Zeus had contracted him to hold up the sky while all the other titans were trapped in Tartaros. Um, so Heracles comes to the edge of the world, setting up the pillars of Her Heracles, also very famous. This marks the end of the known world, as far as the Greeks are concerned. And they are set up, like, in the far west of the Mediterranean, like, at the Straits of Gibraltar uh, around Spain. Like, the Greeks are aware of the existence of Europe, even though they don't typically talk about it all that much. Um, but this is literally the end of the world. Like after that is the Atlantic Ocean. The Greeks are not seaworthy enough to be able to, you know, deal and deal with that. Um, so Heracles goes to the end of the world. He meets with Atlas, and while Atlas goes to get the golden apples of the Hesperides, Heracles offers to take the like sky on his shoulders for a little while. Um, but Atlas, now relieved of his responsibility, does in fact go and get the apples, but comes back and is like, you know what? I think I'd much rather have apples of the Hesperides than, you know, the giant weight of the sky on my shoulders anytime soon. Um, and Heracles is like, you son of a bitch, what? You tricked me, and now I'm stuck here. Um, but tell you what, like, give me a fair shake, like, just hold it for a second, and I'm gonna, like, get a pillow so I can, like, put it on my shoulders, but, but with a little bit of padding. And Atlas is like, okay, sure, no problem. And Heracles is like, gotcha, sucker, now you're stuck holding the sky, I'm gonna go take these apples back to Eurystheus. And Atlas is like, damn, I never should have fallen for that, and yeah he probably shouldn't have atlas is apparently not all that bright as far as titans go um this is one of the big a-list accomplishments of heracles and notice that heracles wins this one with strength and with smarts um like he obviously you know is strong enough to hold up the sky which is pretty awesome as heraclean feats go um, but also he is smart enough to outwit Atlas and get him to take over his responsibility again um, when Atlas himself is trying to deceive and Heracles and get out of it. Um, the twelfth labor is Heracles' visit to the underworld. As I stressed, many of our heroes are going to hang out in the underworld and Heracles will not miss his opportunity to do so. Um, Eurystheus sends him to bring back Cerberus because... Again, apparently, like, the golden apples were the only thing that Eurystheus could think of that actually would have profited him in the end. Um, so Heracles goes down into the underworld. In the process, he messes up the place. Like, he frees Theseus from the bench that he's stuck on. And he tries to free Perithous too, and fails. Like, Hades gets really mad at him. Because remember, Perithous was trying to, like, date Persephone, even though she's very much already married p.s do not cross hades or he will totally end you um but he does free theseus and while he's down there like he messes with a number of the other hades punishments so this is another one of those cases where hades is like oh god just please just take the friggin dog and go just leave me alone oh my gosh you're the worst um so anyway heracles carries off cerberus and brings him back to eurystheus and then that's pretty much the shape of things this one is fairly small, but it is memorable because, again, Heracles did spend some time in the underworld and does capture Cerberus, the guard dog of Hades. Um, also very impressive. So those are the 12 labors, big and small alike. Um, you should remember most of the big ones. Cerberus, the Hydra, the Nemean Lion, the Aegean Stables, the Golden Apples of the Hesperides. Um, those are the ones that tend to get the most press. Um, so, like, keep those in mind. Many of them will be on the midterm. 
Um, now, the other thing to remember about Heracles, and the thing that I want to sort of focus on especially, um, is the way that Heracles dies, um, or doesn't die, as the case may be. Um, so at this point, you have probably observed that Heracles' home life is not great. Like, he killed his first family in a fit of rage because of Hera. Um, it is debatable whether he did this again due to Hera. Um, at any rate, Heracles is finally getting ready to settle down after all these adventures. Um, and he is wooing Dianyra. Um, and... Apparently there are a couple of heroic feats involved, but this really comes to the fore when, like, Heracles is crossing a river with Dianyra, and Nessos, who is a centaur, um, like, is apparently the person ferrying people across the river, so he ferries, like, Heracles across the river, he carries Heracles on his back, um, and then he gets Dianyra to bring across, and in the process, Nessos tries to ravish her. Um, and Heracles, of course, won't have this, so he shoots uh, Nessos the centaur with his bow and his poisoned arrows, and Nessos dies in the middle of the river, and as he is dying, he whispers to Deonera that if she's ever worried about Heracles's like, fidelity, if she's ever worried that Heracles doesn't love her, um, she should use his blood as a love potion. Um, and he give, he makes sure that she takes some of Nessos's the centaur's blood in a vial, um, so she can use it uh, as a love potion for Heracles later. Um, now, what we should all remember is that Nessos's blood has hydra venom in it, um, because he was just shot with the bow, the uh, um, the arrows that Heracles dipped in the blood of the Lernian hydra. So it's very poisonous and very toxic and very painful, as in evidenced by the fact that Chiron was in so much pain earlier. Um, but Deonera, not knowing this, apparently gathers up the blood, and now she's got it. And indeed, on their wedding night, um, she's getting a little worried about Heracles being faithful to her, and she spreads the potion on his cloak. And when Heracles puts on the cloak, it immediately burns his skin and fuses to it so he's tearing off the cloak and tearing off shreds of his own skin in the process um and i want to sort of stress this one heroic deaths are kind of a famous tradition throughout many mythic traditions um because you know somebody as heroic as heracles what could possibly kill him Importantly, the answer here is kind of twofold. Well, nothing can kill him except Heracles himself tearing off his own, you know, skin. But in typical Greek fashion, it's also a woman. Heracles fell in love with his wife and his wife was gullible and therefore Heracles never saw the treachery coming and Deranera destroys Heracles. Damn those women destroying all those good men's lives. Um, so anyway, Heracles apparently skinless, like, creates a funereal pyre for himself, like, stacks a bunch of wood there and has somebody set him on fire. But before he is, like, totally burned up and killed, um, somebody from Olympus sweeps down and carries him off the pyre, and now he resides in Olympus as one of the immortal gods, and is worshipped as a god at this point. Like, there are lots and lots of sacrifices made to Heracles, especially among the Greeks, who revere him as much as they do, but also among the Romans, who call him Hercules, which is where we get that name. Um, 
And so ends the career of the greatest of the Greek heroes, who does in fact achieve immortality and is apotheosized and becomes a god in his own right. Uh, but keep in mind that that tradition isn't universal. Not all stories of Heracles end with him, like, happily residing with the gods as a god. Um, as much as, like, again, the Disney movie stressed this one and stressed it for completely different reasons, I might add. Um, this is not all of the traditions. Some of the older ones seem to have it that Heracles does in fact die in this process. Um, but most will, especially the, especially the more modern ones, um, like, by which I mean, like, the ones in classical ancient Greece rather than, like, ancient, ancient Greece, um, those ones tend to have him as one of the gods and therefore he is worshipped as such. But I do want to stress the contrast between Heracles as the Greeks present him and Gilgamesh as the Babylonians present him. Um, like the, the story of Gilgamesh is fragmentary and messy, which is why I did not want you to have to read like the whole of what we have of the Gilgamesh. Um, like the extra mythology video did a pretty good job of explaining many of the passages that were like especially egregiously damaged, um, reduced to a fine powder, as Matt said. Um, but you'll also notice in the, like the tablets that we read for today, that there's also a couple of chunks that just don't make sense or bits that are missing. Um, there were lots of little ellipses and brackets, which is an indication that the tablet is no longer intact. Um, so this is, this is a spotty one at best, and it is very distant, um, from most of the myths that we are familiar with. Like the story of Gilgamesh as we have it is the single oldest recorded document period that we have so far as i know besides like written accounts of like tallied up um like inventory in granaries and temples um this is the oldest myth that we have a record of or rather the oldest record of a myth um since in all likelihood many of these myths are in fact really ancient and come from older traditions we don't know how old exactly any one of them is but that's also true with the Gilgamesh like obviously this record probably comes from an even older tradition and if that's the case then that means that like there is a very decent chance that Gilgamesh is the oldest myth we have a record of in addition to being the oldest record of a myth we have um so the extra mythology video did a really good job of explaining most of the early part of the myth like the introduction to Enkidu like Gilgamesh as tyrant becoming sort of civilized by Enkidu um Enkidu himself like becoming civilized and then like losing his attachment to the animal world um this is all great like I do not want to downplay what extra mythology was doing um and I also like their explanation their sort of reference to you know like Gilgamesh as an uncivilized tyrant Enkidu is an uncivilized beast man, the two of them coming together and through the power of friendship overcoming their uncivility and bringing civilization to um, their respective worlds. But this isn't the end of the story. That's why I wanted you to read as much as we could of Chablets 10 and 11. See, Enkidu dies right after they defeat Humbaba. Like, it's actually a fairly involved process, and I'm still not sure I can make heads or tails out of it, but apparently they're, like, sacrificing to Ishtar, and, like, there's this awesome bull that the gods send against them because they're mad that they killed Humbaba, and they kill the bull, no problem. But then, like, apparently the god just makes Enkidu sick, 
and then Enkidu dies. Like, it's that pointless, and it's that dumb, and it's that sudden. Um, and that's what the myth very much stresses here. Like, as much as there's a whole bunch of crazy stuff with Humbaba and, like, defeating Humbaba is an indication of civilization and, like, there's the weird face contorting competition and, and like, the, the dream sequence that, again, extra mythology goes into some detail about. Um, and as much as, like, defeating Humbaba is the epic adventure of Enkidu and Gilgamesh, really the sort of take-home message of Enkidu of like the Gilgamesh story has way more to do with mortality than it does with heroism. Um, like, and civilization for that matter. Like civilization's a major theme here, but it's one of two. The fact that Enkidu dies, like is the next phase of this story. And it rocks Gilgamesh's world. Um, like Gilgamesh, upon learning that Enkidu is dead, upon, like, watching his friend die, weeps for, like, a week straight. Um, and then after weeping for a week straight, goes on his journey to bring Enkidu back from the dead. Like, if this sounds familiar, it should. Um, this is the first indication we have of an Orpheus-esque myth, of somebody traveling into the underworld and seeking out, like, their friend and rescuing them from death itself. And this is also a myth that we're going to see repeated in other traditions as well. Like, Ishtar herself at one point goes into the underworld. There is a similar story of someone going into the underworld in Chinese and Japanese mythology. Um, like, this is a well-attested mythic sort of theme this idea of going into the underworld to rescue a lost loved one. Um, although in this case, it's not like a romantic love. It is a love through friendship. The bond between Gilgamesh and Enkidu is that strong at that point. Um, and Gilgamesh meets Utnapishtim, um, who is apparently like the ferryman of the underworld or just a rando ferryman. It's not entirely clear. Um, he certainly seems to have some relationship to Charon, our ferryman of the underworld in the Greek tradition. Um, but importantly, like, when Gilgamesh is sort of inquiring after Enkidu, he gets very sidetracked. Either because it's very obviously presented to him that, like, no, you cannot rescue people from death. That's not a thing that happens. Um, but also because Gilgamesh becomes obsessed with his own mortality. Um, Gilgamesh strives to live eternally. And as we see here, he can't. Like, Utnapishtim says, you know, hey, you really want to be immortal? Okay, well, let's start with the easy stuff. Stay awake for seven nights straight. And Gilgamesh is like, Psh, no problem. I'm Gilgamesh. I can totally stay up for seven nights straight. Watch me. And he, like, sits there and immediately falls asleep and then presumes to sleep for seven nights straight. And, like, Utnapishtim wakes him up and he's like, hey, Gilgamesh, you fell asleep. And Gilgamesh is like, no, I didn't. I totally didn't. I was only asleep for like 30 seconds. And Utnapishtim is like, look at your rations. They have all spoiled and gone rotten. You have been asleep for seven days. And Gilgamesh is like, oh, shit. I guess I'm not going to be immortal, am I? And Utnapishtim is like, no, no, you are not even close to being immortal. And that's not going to happen. And this is the emphasis of this myth. Like, as much as, you know, Enkidu and Gilgamesh's friendship of the ages is an important part of this myth, really, like, the drive-home message here is you are not immortal. 
Um, humans are not meant to achieve immortality, um, which is something that you'll run into in the Greek mythic tradition pretty frequently as well. What I find interesting is that Heracles is the exception to this rule. Um, Heracles and Gilgamesh make a really interesting contrast specifically because on the one hand, like Gilgamesh, like Heracles is, you know, the superhero, like he is super important. He has this tragic flaw, namely that he is like a giant tyrant and he sleeps with other people's wives and he is a horrible monster to people like Heracles who, you know, will fly into fits of rage and kill his own family, but they both redeem themselves through their epic labors. Gilgamesh through his friendship with Enkidu, Heracles through his various labors saving the world for Eurystheus. But where Heracles, when faced with, like, death, ultimately transcends it, like, experiences terrible pain, but ultimately becomes a god, um, Gilgamesh is faced with a challenge and fails so profoundly. Um, this is very much the theme of this myth. But it's also not the end of the myth. Um, Tablet 12 goes on to explain that Gilgamesh goes back home to Uruk, like the city where he was a tyrant, um, where he is now redeemed in the people's eyes because he has slayed Humbaba, but for the most part they're also still kind of wary of him. Um, and Gilgamesh builds a wall. And on this wall he inscribes the pictures of his journey. Like, him as a tyrant, him meeting Enkidu, Enkidu and he fighting one another for the first time, he and Enkidu having all their crazy dreams and going off to fight Humbaba and killing Humbaba, but then also Enkidu dying and Gilgamesh having to go into the underworld to search for him and Gilgamesh going into the underworld but failing to find him, Gilgamesh striving for immortality and failing to do that as well. All of this is recorded on the wall around the city of Uruk. And what the poem stresses, what the like text of the Gilgamesh stresses is that Gilgamesh dies. Um, like he dies, there's no way around it. Like the last words of the text are devoted to his death. But Gilgamesh has attained immortality through his actions, through his accomplishments. Um, the wall that Gilgamesh made and carved, the story of Gilgamesh as we have it, that's immortality for the Babylonians, or at least as close to it as humans can get. It is thoroughly emphasized in the story of Gilgamesh that you cannot live forever, not the way that we normally think of as living. However, we will praise Gilgamesh forever. And more than any other hero, that's really obvious in this case. Like, if Gilgamesh is, in fact, the oldest myth we have a record of, um, then that implies that Gilgamesh and his story has been told longer than any other single hero on the face of this earth. Like, Gilgamesh has achieved a certain amount of immortality. Like, sure, he's not as famous as Hercules, in part because the Gilgamesh tablets had been lost for so long. Although we had, like, versions of the story that, you know, were considerably less trustworthy and less complete um, than that you are reading from here um, with the original tablets. But all the same, like... This myth and the fact that we have this myth very much proves the message and the theme of this myth. Um, Gilgamesh is immortal. We still talk about him. His story is still told, even though the story of Gilgamesh is that people cannot escape their own mortality. Um, 
And I think there's a certain maturity about this, a certain antiquity and importance about this, something that the Greeks lose track of in their celebration of Heracles here. Um, something that, you know, is makes Orpheus more resonant than the apotheosis of Heracles. Like, there's something indulgent about Heracles ultimately becoming a god, that like, if you were just strong enough, if you were just awesome enough, you too could be a god. Where the Babylonians recognize, no, it, it, as long as you're a human, that's, that's never on the table. Um, divinity is not at your disposal. It is not at all something that you can attain. There's something very sobering about that. Um, something very fatal about that in the same way that like C.S. Lewis emphasized that all good myths have an inevitability about them, a fatalism about them. Um, which is why in some ways I think I actually prefer the versions of Heracles where Heracles does in fact die at the end um, rather than being apotheosized. Um, this sort of emphasis that, you know, this the greatest hero still at the end of the day dies. Admittedly because of, you know, women, darn his wife for poisoning Heracles, um, but nonetheless, death. Um, and the Romans will totally lose sight of this. Like, P.S., the Romans, as I emphasized, they're willing to make gods out of tons of people. Like, Aeneas is a god, Heracles slash Hercules is a god, the emperors all become gods. Like, tons of humans apotheosize in the Roman tradition, um, in part because the Romans are obsessed with this level of power and strength um, in a way that the Greeks simply are not. The Greeks are more sober-minded. If anything, Heracles is special precisely because um, he is apotheosized. Like, he is the only one who can achieve that, and if anything, the Greeks are underscoring the same message that the Gilgamesh does. Namely, that, like, only Heracles could do this. No one else can, um, as Orpheus proves. But for the Romans, you too could be a god, if only you are a good enough citizen, if only you accomplish greater things. Um, and there are exceptions to this, like... There are reminders. The memento mori is a specifically Roman thing. Um, like when a tribune was celebrated so much for their accomplishments, um, like when a famous general would be paraded through the streets of Rome, he would be assigned someone to stand at his side, like amidst the celebration and just whisper in his ear, remember you are mortal, remember you are mortal. Um, this idea of hubris, of sort of, wanting more than one has is really sort of set into focus here. Um, hubris is, again, something we've sort of been running across a lot in this class, but not something I've explained just yet, and now is probably as good a time as any. Um, hubris is thinking of yourself as higher than the gods, forgetting your place, in a manner of speaking. Um, literally, it means standing tall, like taller than you ought. Um, and for the Greeks, hubris is dangerous. Um, when you distinguish yourself among the Greeks, you basically make yourself into a lightning rod. Um, if you were a hero like Heracles or like Theseus or like Odysseus, yes, it's awesome and you are likely going to be immortalized in song and in poetry and in myth, um, but you do so at the risk of attracting the gods' displeasure. Heracles has Hera chasing after him all the time. Odysseus enrages Poseidon. Um, Theseus gets stuck to a bench by Hades. Um, by becoming famous, these heroes also become targets um, of the gods' displeasure. 
Um, and as I stressed with the story of little Ajax who washed up on the rock and said, no, God can kill me just before Zeus struck him with a lightning bolt. You don't want to attract the attention of the gods. You don't blaspheme as much because it's wrong as because the gods will take retribution on you for doing it. Um, so this idea of hubris Gilgamesh has hubris in this Greek sense, although it's not a Babylonian idea. Um, he oversteps his position. He is a great king, a very powerful king, but he does too much with it. He is a tyrant. He abuses his position of power, and therefore people get mad at him. Um, and he would have died ignominiously if that's all there was to his story. Heracles absolutely experiences hubris. Every time he crosses one of the gods, either because Eurystheus told him to or otherwise, he is attracting their ire and displeasure. And the death of Heracles, whether you read it as an actual death or as like the lead up to his apotheosis, is not pleasant. Like Heracles' story is very much a cautionary tale. Yes, he's awesome. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he's strong. Yes, he's famous. Yes, you want to be like him. But don't forget... Heracles murdered his own family. Heracles destroyed the life of Chiron. Heracles himself suffered terrible pain because his wife did not trust him. Heracles suffers for his accomplishments. And if you want all of the pride of Heracles, if you, all, if you want all of the honor of Heracles, if you want all of the glamour of Heracles, it comes at the price of all the suffering of Heracles. And that is fairly sober, as the Greeks are concerned. That is unavoidable. Um, Heracles did not live a happy life. Um, and most of the figures that we run across in Greek myth who have, like, grand accomplishments or happy lives, guys like Priam with his hundred sons and his grand city of Troy, um, guys like Minos who take the Athenian tributes for granted only to watch his entire like empire fall apart when Theseus kills the Minotaur. Um, all of these figures at the end of the day come to a humiliating end or are humiliated by the gods in some way. They are reminded that they are only mortal. And this is an important theme of all of these myths, perhaps one of the most important themes. Um, it is certainly a theme that we're going to run into again and again in Homer as well, um, especially with Achilles and especially with Odysseus. Do not stand up too tall or the gods will put you back in your place. And usually it will not be a lot of fun getting there. Um, so this is it for the first half of our class. This is it for our more scattershot approach to myth. Um, there are a ton that we missed along the way. Like, do not get me wrong. I wish I had more time to devote to, say, the Metamorphoses um, or some of the other weird myths that like, I especially love. Um, but I do want to spend some significant time on both the Iliad and the Odyssey. And most of the mythology classes that I've seen if they include more of the sort of scattershot myths, they do so at the sacrifice of getting deep into Homer. Um, so for the rest of the class, we're going to be digging deep into Homer and the Odyssey and the Iliad. 
Um, first the Iliad, then the Odyssey. Um, we will read Oedipus Rex at the end of the semester, and we will get one look at Ovid at the very end, um, but unfortunately we do not have much time for much or anything other than that, um, since I don't want to force you to do any more reading than you already are doing. Um, so I hope that you've enjoyed these scattershot myths. Feel free to peruse through the textbook for more. Feel free to find others elsewhere. Um, if you want suggestions, I'll be happy to point you their way. I'll also be telling the occasional myth from time to time as we it becomes relevant in the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, but for now, we are changing our focus from sort of looking at many myths and trying to get what matters out of them. Um, as well as understanding like what they mean by comparing and contrasting them, we will now be devoting our attention to some hardcore, deep-seated analysis, um, looking at Homer and what he is doing in the Iliad and the Odyssey and these epics, epic stories. Um, so midterm next week, and after that we will do some digging. I look forward to it.